0: I'm dermatologist and hair specialist, Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. This is the Evidence-Based Podcast for the February 14th, 2022 issue, Season 1, Episode 2. The second Monday of each month is dedicated to the four Ts, telogen effluvium, traction alopecia, trichotillomania, and tinea capitis, and we'll be looking at seven studies from the past month or so addressing these particular areas. We'll talk about post-COVID hair loss. Post-COVID hair loss is a type of telogen effluvium that occurs after the COVID-19 infection has resolved. We'll talk about telogen effluvium in children. We'll talk about a very interesting association between the use of stimulant medications, which are commonly used to treat attention deficit, and trichotillomania. Not a common association, but one that we should be aware of. And we'll talk about tinea capitis, and specifically the risk of scarring alopecia in patients with Carrion, a type of tinea capitis infection. So let's talk about telogen effluvium. Telogen effluvium is a type of hair loss that occurs after a trigger. And common triggers include stress, low iron, thyroid problems, medications that are starting or stopping, crash diets, and infections. And certainly the SARS-CoV-2 virus is recognized as one of the triggers of telogen effluvium. You may be aware of this syndrome known as the post-COVID syndrome. It's a constellation of symptoms and signs that patients have for weeks and months after their acute COVID infection has resolved. And it goes by many names. The formal name is the post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2. It also goes by long-term COVID, long hauler. These are the symptoms and signs that patients have once they feel that they've recovered from the actual acute infection. There's a variety of symptoms that have been described in the post-COVID syndrome, including fatigue, headaches, hair loss, memory problems, cough, loss of taste and smell, depression and anxiety, poor sleep, chest pain, muscle pains, joint pains. So these are all part of the post-COVID syndrome and a lot of very active research is being done relating to the post-COVID syndrome and we are going to focus today of course on hair loss and scalp symptoms as part of the post-COVID syndrome. So a very interesting study from January looked at more than 50 long-term effects of COVID-19. The references for all of these studies that I'll present today are found in the notes that accompany this episode. So this was a systematic review and meta-analysis which sought to identify the long-term effects of COVID-19. The authors wanted to provide an estimate for how common some of these symptoms are after COVID-19 has resolved. And so they looked at 15 studies, which comprised over 47,000 patients and they looked at the prevalence of 55 long term effects of COVID 19. The patients in these studies had follow up ranging from 14 to 110 days after their COVID 19 infection. Ages range from 17 to 87. And it was estimated that 80% of patients that had COVID 19 developed one or more of these long term symptoms after their COVID-19 infection resolved. What are the top five symptoms? Well, they're fatigue, headache, attention deficit, hair loss, and shortness of breath. And in this particular study, hair loss occurred in 25% of patients. It was the fourth most common symptom. Fatigue was number one. That occurred in 58% of patients, uh, uh, followed by headaches, attention deficit. But hair loss occurred in 25% of patients. Another study published in January in the International Journal of Dermatology highlighted in more detail the post-COVID syndrome effects on the hair. And this was a study by Mueller-Ramos and colleagues looking at 5,891 patients. So a relatively large study and a very interesting study. The authors of this study set out to evaluate the prevalence of hair loss and hair symptoms, as well as a variety of clinical issues in the first three months after COVID-19 infection. And they used a survey to gather information related to symptoms that patients were experiencing after their acute infection resolved. So there was 5,891 patients. These patients had COVID-19 had a more mild form and were treated at home, 6.7% were treated in hospital, and 4% were in the ICU. 86% of patients had at least one issue in the first three months after their COVID infection resolved. In other words, at least 86% of patients had one of these post-COVID syndrome issues. In this particular study by Mueller-Ramos, hair loss was number one. It occurred in 50% of patients, and it topped the list. Other issues like memory loss, attention deficit, weakness, anxiety, depression, headaches, uh, loss of taste and smell were a part of this post-COVID syndrome that the authors identified, but hair loss was number one. Hair loss was divided between mild hair loss, moderate hair loss, and severe hair loss, And of the 50% of patients that had hair loss after COVID-19 infection, about a third had mild hair loss, a third had moderate hair loss, and a third had severe hair loss. So there was a wide variation in the severity of hair loss. But the authors showed that patients that were hospitalized were more likely to have severe hair loss. Moreover, hair loss was associated with the length of the COVID-19 acute infection it was associated with inflammatory symptoms. If you had high fever, severe shortness of breath, or muscle pains, you were more likely to get hair loss. What was really interesting in this particular study is that 77% of patients had hair loss within the first 30 days, and 15% of patients experienced hair loss between day 30 and 60. So, a relatively rapid onset of hair loss, and this is really important. Um, other studies had su- have suggested that post-COVID hair loss starts on average around two months. This particular study really highlights that a lot of patients may have rapid onset hair loss after COVID-19. In this particular study, female patients were more affected than male patients with hair loss, and moderate to severe hair loss occurred in 44% of women compared to only 9% of men. And we're going to come back to this issue of the differences between men and women in hair loss after COVID-19. It's a really important concept, and I think it's going to be the subject of a lot of important research in the months and years ahead. What was really interesting about this particular study is the focus on trichodynia. And trichodynia means scalp pain. If you speak to patients that have hair loss after COVID-19... The hair loss itself is very distressing, there's no doubt about it. But what is particularly unusual is the prevalence of scalp pain. The scalp is sore. The scalp hurts to move the hair. This is called trichodynia. And in this particular study, the authors really sought to identify more information about this trichodynia. And it was identified in about a quarter of patients. 10-12% to had the onset of trichodynia during the COVID-19 acute infection, the first week or two or three, and about 11% had trichodynia starting after the acute infection resolved. Patients with this late-onset trichodynia were more likely to have had severe COVID infection, more likely to be hospitalized, and trichodynia was particularly associated with hair loss. In other words, Patients that had hair loss were more likely to have concerns about trichodynia after COVID-19 resolved. And if you had hair loss, you had about a six-fold increased risk of having trichodynia. If you had weakness, paresthesias, memory loss, or poor sleep, you also had an increased risk of having trichodynia after COVID-19 as part of this post-COVID syndrome. So this is a really interesting study, certainly a large study, 5,800 patients, really highlights the uh, fact that hair shedding is among the top symptoms that patients experience after COVID-19, but also highlights the importance of trichodynia occurring in up to a quarter of patients, something that we really can't neglect for our patients. The study also highlighted the fact that female patients are much more likely to have hair loss after COVID-19 than male patients. And another study published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine in January 2022 also looked at the differences between males and females with post-COVID hair loss. What the authors wanted to look at was, do males and females have different symptoms during the acute infection? And do males and females have a different set of symptoms after the infection resolves. In other words, during the post-COVID period. So they looked at 1045 males, 1,000 males, 915 females. What was really interesting is that issues like fever, shortness of breath, muscle pain, loss of taste and smell really didn't differ between males and females during the first week or two or three. But... During the post-COVID period, between week three and beyond, female patients were much more likely to experience symptoms. In fact, hair loss was almost five times more likely to be experienced by female patients than male patients, and there was a slight increased likelihood of female patients experiencing fatigue, shortness of breath, depression, poor sleep. And so some of these post-COVID syndrome symptoms are increased in female patients compared to male patients. And so women are five times more likely to have hair loss after COVID-19, according to this study. We, of course, don't understand the reasons why. Women often experience telogen effluvium from triggers to a greater extent than males. And so um, this certainly fits in with what we know about hair shedding. But the exact reasons why this is occurring in the setting of COVID-19, we don't know. And so this post-COVID syndrome is an important issue. Certainly, a very large number of patients that experience COVID-19 have symptoms that persist after the infection seems to have gone away. hair loss is a very prevalent symptom. From telogen effluvium in adults, we'll look at telogen effluvium now in children and telogen effluvium can occur in children when you look at the reasons why children come into a clinic about hair loss it's often telogen effluvium trichotillomania and tinea capitis these are very common reasons in children androgenetic hair loss may occur in teenagers not very commonly but it's part of the list of conditions that children present with scarring alopecia is certainly not very common in children but a very interesting study looked at some of the associations with telogen effluvium in children. And this was published in January in the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. And so these authors performed a retrospective review of patients in the pediatric age group between 1996 and 2019. And this was patients from the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada, which is a very large academic tertiary center seeing some of the most complex uh, patients with various medical issues uh, in Canada and around the world. There were 42 patients in this particular study, the mean age was 11, and 82% were female. So what are the triggers of telogen effluvium that these authors identified? Well, They identified that 30% had a systemic condition as the trigger, like inflammatory bowel disease in five patients, rheumatologic disease in four patients. 19% had an infectious trigger as the reason for their telogen effluvium. 19% had iron deficiency. 14% had vitamin D deficiency. And 9% had emotional stress as the trigger for their telogen effluvium. In this particular study, 30% of these pediatric patients didn't have any blood work done. And so with telogen effluvium, we often think about, should we order blood tests for iron, thyroid, zinc, uh, a basic hemoglobin, uh, any autoimmune tests that seem relevant in a patient? But in this particular study, 30% of patients didn't have any lab tests. But iron deficiency occurred in 19%, vitamin D deficiency in 14%, and two patients had zinc deficiency. One of these patients had no underlying comorbidities at all. They just happened to have a zinc deficiency. And so this is an interesting study. It kind of reminds us that iron deficiency, stress, and infections are very much the main triggers of telogen effluvium in children. The reason I like this study and the reason I wanted to highlight it today is it reminds us of a really important point. And telogen effluvium is certainly one of my favorite subjects. We need to be humble when we deal with telogen effluvium. When we have a patient in front of us, whether it's a child or an adult, it's easy to convince ourselves that the blood test abnormality in front of us on the piece of paper or on our computer screen is responsible for the telogen effluvium. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. And so if you have a patient in front of you with a ferritin of 24 and you think to yourself, I think the ferritin needs to be 40 or 50 or 60 for healthy hair. Therefore, this ferritin of 24 is the reason for hair loss. That's dangerous because you're going to get tricked many, many times. Many times the lab abnormalities in front of us have nothing to do with the telogen effluvium. And so we need to be careful to attribute the lab abnormality to the telogen effluvium. If you have a child with a ferritin of 28, it may or may not be involved. If they have a low hemoglobin and a ferritin of 22 to 18, 12, it's becoming more likely. If you have a child with a ferritin of 6 and a hemoglobin of, uh, you know, quite low in the anemic range, well, it's becoming much more likely that that abnormality is responsible for the telogen effluvium. And so in this particular study, the authors have identified these abnormalities, but we have to be careful because we don't actually know that these abnormalities are the cause of the telogen effluvium. And so if you say to a parent, little Sally has telogen effluvium from low iron, she needs to eat more meat, she needs to take in more iron. Sally's going to go through her childhood, perhaps her life, remembering that she had iron deficiency and she had a major problem. And perhaps mom, dad, grandparents, other people in the child's life are going to say, you need to eat better, you have iron deficiency. We have to be careful. We have to be humble to the fact that we don't always know the trigger. And so the way I like to deal with telogen effluvium is, if I'm not 100% sure, I let patients know that there may be this likelihood that low iron is responsible and I'd like you to take iron. But I let patients know that it's not definite and I'm not 100% sure. We're going to supplement with iron and I'm going to see you back in four to six months. In 25 to 50% of cases of telogen effluvium, We do not know the trigger, and we need to remember that. We love to know the trigger. We love to feel that we know what's going on. But when it comes to telogen effluvium, we need to be humble that sometimes we do not know, and we're only giving our best guess. And so this was a nice study, pediatric study of telogen effluvium, iron deficiency, stress, infections. These top the list. From telogen effluvium, we'll move to trichotillomania. This was a very interesting study that was published in January 2022, looking at the relationship between stimulant use and trichotillomania. Not a very common association, but I'd like to highlight this very important review by these authors from New York and Miami. So trichotillomania is a condition whereby patients pull their hair and the DSM criteria from 2013, the so-called DSM-5, have outlined the definition for what trichotillomania is. And trichotillomania occurs in anywhere from 3 to 5% of patients. It's, It's not uncommon. And an even greater number of patients, greater proportion than this, will actually pull their hair during their lifetime from time to time. So trichotillomania and hair pulling is not uncommon. So this study looked at whether stimulant medications that are prescribed for attention deficit and other conditions can contribute to trichotillomania. Stimulant medications are increasingly prescribed in North America and around the world, and some studies have estimated that anywhere from 5 to 6% of adults have been prescribed stimulant medications in the last one year. And you may be familiar with these medications. Methylphenidate goes by names like Ritalin and Concerta. Uh, Listexamphetamine goes by Vivance and Elvance. And amphetamine, dextramphetamine goes by Adderall. And I say the trade names because they are so familiar to us that I would like listeners to really understand what I'm talking about when I mention these stimulant medications. Stimulant medications are used for a number of uh, conditions including attention deficit. Side effects include decreased appetite, anxiety, diarrhea, dry mouth, insomnia, sometimes sometimes uh, increased heart rate, as well as other less common cardiovascular effects. But what about trichotillomania as a side effect? Well, this particular study set out to examine all the published cases of trichotillomania as well as tactile hallucinations, feeling that something's crawling on you, as well as delusional infestations, or what was used to be called delusions of parasitosis, caused by stimulant medications. We're going to focus on trichotillomania, because this is the second Monday of the month, and this is the four Ts. Um, But the authors identified 17 articles with 22 case reports. Trichotillomania was described in eight cases, Eight cases of trichotillomania were thought to be induced by prescription stimulant medications. Seven of these patients were pediatric-aged, and one was an adult. And every patient received stimulant prescriptions for the treatment of attention deficit. And hair-pulling began anywhere from a few days to several months after starting the new prescription. The medications that were associated were the typical stimulant medications that we talked about. And symptoms resolved in these particular patients once the medications were discontinued or the dose was reduced. And in one patient where a re-challenge occurred, meaning the medication was given back, hair pulling resumed once again. And this is an important way of trying to tie in the strength of an association. We take away the medication, we see what happens. We give back the medication, we see what happens. We double the medication, we see what happens. We half the medication, we see what happens. Uh, And so these are ways that we try to get a sense if there's truly an association or is this just a coincidence. And so what the authors propose here is that there may be a relationship between stimulant use and trichotillomania. It's not uh, describing how common it is, but it's something we need to be aware of in our patients that present with trichotillomania. A good history is always needed in any patient with trichotillomania, but a medication history is important. Before we leave trichotillomania, I want to highlight another study describing erosive pustular dermatosis of the scalp. Erosive pustular dermatosis of the scalp is a a scarring hair loss condition that is thought to be way more common than we give it credit to. It tends to occur in elderly patients, but this study drew attention to the possibility that trichotillomania may induce or be a trigger for erosive pustular dermatosis. And so pustular dermatosis is something that every hair specialist should know about. Patients present with a red scalp that has crusts and erosions and pus, and if you don't treat it, the patient can get scarring hair loss. Most patients are elderly. Most patients have sun damage, and they get these erosions and pustules and scales, and when you take off the crust, you see this pus that's present. When you swab for infectious agents, there's no infectious agent that can be found. And when you give them topical steroids, the disease goes away within a month or two. It's just a remarkable improvement. The important thing about erosive pustular dermatosis is that there's a lot of mimickers. And we're going to touch on this in just a minute. So erosive pustular dermatosis of the scalp is triggered by many things. Infections, trauma, inflammation, topical therapies, medications, these can all trigger erosive pustular dermatosis. And trauma is thought to be an important trigger. We know that whenever the scalp is injured, whether by surgery uh, or cryotherapy or hair transplants or burns or radiation, it can rarely trigger erosive pustular dermatosis. So, is trichotillomania one of the factors that would be described under trauma? Is it a new trigger for erosive pustular dermatosis? Well, these authors described a 69-year-old woman who presented with erosions on the scalp. She had a history of anxiety and depression. She was taking an antidepressant, and six months before her scalp lesions, She saw her psychiatrist, and a psychiatrist noted the onset of psychotic symptoms, identified trichotillomania, and added an antipsychotic to the treatment plan. The patient was identified to have erosions on the scalp um, of various sizes. The swabs were negative. Hair examinations by dermoscopy showed that the patient had trichotillomania, but the thought was that the patient also had erosive pustular dermatosis. The patient declined a biopsy, so we don't have any biopsy information. But when the patient was given prednisone and topical steroids, the disease went away rapidly. So an interesting study. Is there truly an association between trichotillomania as a trigger for erosive pustular dermatosis? Well, I think this study fuels us to think more about this. I don't think it proves it, but it certainly encourages people to think more about it. The thing I'd like to highlight today before we leave this topic is erosive pustular dermatosis has a lot of mimickers. If you're going to identify or diagnose erosive pustular dermatosis, you need to know how to identify squamous cell cancer, actinic keratosis, tinea capitis, Self induced excoriations, scarring alopecia, pyoderma gangrenosum, blistering disorders like cicatricial pemphigoid. And in this particular study that these authors present, this 69 year old patient with depression and psychosis, I don't think we can completely rule out that these are self induced excoriations based on the pictures. We don't have a biopsy, we don't have a lot of long term data, and we don't know how long the patient was treated. Uh, and so this is something that certainly would would be among the differential. Interestingly, uh, interesting study, nevertheless. All good studies fuel further studies. And I think this is one of them. Uh, I don't think we can say for sure that trichotillomania is a trigger for erosive pustular dermatosis. But I think it triggers us to think more about this. And I encourage all of you to look at the reference, look at the pictures, and see for yourself if you think that this would fit the definition of erosive pustular dermatosis or whether another condition in the long list of differentials would fit better. So finally, let's talk about tinea capitis. An interesting study in January online in pediatric dermatology looked at the risk of scarring in pediatric patients with carrion. And carrion is a type of fungal infection that children often get, where a golf ball-shaped sized area, Boggy and tender forms on the scalp. And the worry is, is that if we don't treat this properly and quickly, the child may develop scarring hair loss. And so, tinea capitis has many forms. There's non inflammatory forms and there's inflammatory forms. And the carry is an inflammatory form. Patients with carry develop red, boggy, tender, sore dome-shaped lesions on the scalp from a fungal infection. Tinea capitis is much more common in children than in adults, and so we really need to understand tinea capitis well when you're dealing with children with hair loss. And so it's been recognized for a while that some patients with carrion develop permanent hair loss, but it's not clear how common this is. It's been thought that certain zoophilic uh, fungi like uh, M. canis, T. mentagrophytes, T. Varicosum. Uh, these are zoophilic fungi, or, or fungi that live on an animal, and they can find their way into a human, but their host is an animal. It's thought that these are more likely to cause carry-on, and anthropophilic fungi, or fungi that live on humans, like t are less likely. But what we're realizing now is that t is is emerging as an important cause of carry-on. And so this study looked to address the clinical features of children with carry-on and the risks for scarring. Can we give parents a number? What percent of patients with carry-on develop scarring? What number do you have in your mind? 2%, 10%, 50%? So they retrospectively reviewed medical records from January 2006 to July 2020. They had 389 patients that had tinea capitis. 80 of them, 20.5, had carry-on. The median age at diagnosis of carry-on was 6.6, and permanent scarring hair loss or permanent hair loss of some kind occurred in 27.5%. Bacterial cultures were taken in 29 patients. 41% of patients uh, had positive cultures. Staph aureus, uh, acinetobacter uh, grew in these patients, and 44% had antibiotic treatment. What was interesting is that the outcomes didn't seem to differ by pathogen, whether it was zoophilic or anthropophilic what treatment was used, whether prednisone was used, whether antibiotics were used. Um, small study uh, to, to generate those conclusions definitively, but it's interesting that, that those outcomes of scarring didn't differ uh, how, depending on how the child was treated. So scarring may occur in up to one quarter of those with carry-on. And I think this is a helpful study which gives us numbers. Previous studies have suggested anywhere from two to zero to 14% of children with carrion will develop scarring. This number this study puts the number a little bit higher. And that's it for this week everyone. To recap, we talked about uh, telogen effluvium and post-COVID telogen effluvium. We talked about telogen effluvium in children. We talked about an interesting relationship between stimulant medications and trichotillomania and we talked about the risk of scarring in children with carry-on. Let us know what you think about our content. Please rate or comment wherever you're listening today. If you'd like to connect with our office to learn more about our training programs or to comment on anything, you can email us at info at Next week, we're back talking about scarring alopecia. The third Monday of each month is dedicated to scarring alopecia, and I'll look forward to welcoming you back then here on Evidence-Based Hair.